This is Neil Morse. Welcome to the first edition of Musicians. Musicians having coffee and talking about stuff. With me today is my good friend and drummer extraordinaire, Mr. Mike Portmore. You may have heard of him. I realized I should have picked a, a better mug. I didn't even, I, I didn't give any thought to the mug. I should have. You disgust me. It was a Beatles mug, but as you can see, it's very, very faded from all the coffee I drink. Yes. <laughs> I have a great yellow submarine mug that it's an empty yellow submarine when the mug is empty. Uh. But as soon as you pour hot coffee in it, the four faces appear. You showed me that. I've seen it. Yeah. That is so cool. I should, but I, I so I understand that. But you you like the Beatles? Is this <laughs> is this a is this news? Is this a thing? You know damn well, Morris, because I kicked your butt twice. <laughs> in, in Never, Never, I demand a rematch. What about <laughs> your? What about that little girl of yours? Ooh. What in the world? Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, uh, that was last Christmas, and here we are. We got Christmas coming up in a couple of days, so I'm going to demand a rematch with her on Christmas Day. I, I, if I were you, I'd be scared. It isn't that I don't know the songs; it's the synapses in my brain do not work like your like the Portnoy's man. Oh come on, you you were you were neck you were head to head with me the whole time. <laughs> you're being kind. I'm just only <laughs> slightly sicker than you, but you're just as sick. Well, no, I, I have to kind of hum through the tune. I told you about how not not too long after we did our last one, I was on a cruise and they did a Beatles name that tune. And it was really it was hilarious. It was so great. Like they play like come together. And uh. no, and I would just lay out, I'm like, well, I'm not gonna guess it. I mean, you know. They'd play the whole thing and nobody would get it till it came to the chorus. <laughs> come together. And somebody says, Oh, oh, come together. That's right. <laughs> uh, they must have at least got She Loves You because it opens with the title and the <laughs> right. chorus on the on the downbeat. It was so easy. There was only one that was even remotely obscure. It was the anti anti Portnoy is what it was. <laughs> it was funny. So how you doing, man? I'm doing good. We are uh well, thank you for having me on this. You know, obviously you and I talk constantly. I've heard every one of your stories. A hundred well, times each. So now you get a right. chance to hear a couple of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you but, get yeah. a word in. You know, we Americans, you know, we <laughs> Americans are, we talk so much. Nobody yes, can yes. talk. Yes, I mean, this is true. Actually, well, that is true. At my family dinner table, sometimes I'm like, hey, can we, we need like a talking stick, you know, because <laughs> everybody's just like, has so much to say, you know, until you mention Jesus and then it gets really quiet. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Actually, Christmas is for me, uh, and we were just discussing this, me and Marlene and the kids, uh, that Christmas Eve, what we do, uh, we get together with my at my mother-in-law's on Christmas Eve, and then we do Christmas Day at my house. But Christmas Eve is when the family exchange gifts to everybody. Yeah. It is complete chaos and out of control and we were just saying how we need something like what you said like a, a stick or whatever that you take turns like literally everybody's just opening up presents at the same time nobody's watching what everybody else is getting yeah and it and it's complete chaos and you spend all this time shopping for the perfect gift and you want it to, and it just goes by in a blink of an eye completely unappreciated because it's just such chaos yeah yeah, and I've I've suggested that we do them one at a time, but that might take like actually a couple days to yeah. do. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean, Sherry does like all these intricate little things for the stockings, and right. I mean, it's pretty insane. Oh, I, I can imagine Christmas at your house is pretty uh, yeah pretty festive. In fact, I, I just wrote this song uh, called "Mrs. Claus" on the Christmas album for for her, and uh, the original lyric was "Buying too many gifts for Christmas morning." Right. But I I decided I would you know buying our favorite gifts. Let's make it a little. Let's keep it positive, Mike. Right. Did yeah. you did you guys do shopping? Marlene does. Yeah. The, the, the only reason I ever got married. Is so I, somebody could do with the Christmas shopping, you know, <laughs> that's the greatest thing ever when you have a wife that's like that. So basically, you only have to buy her gift and she buys everybody else's. But everything you have, you have to buy her, a, you have to buy her a gift. Well, to be honest, actually, the last couple of years, we've actually changed it up where we don't get each other gifts. We decide something, a big gift we want to treat ourselves for the house, a big project or a big, you know, something. Right. expensive. Mm -hmm. Oh. Hey, you stuck for a second there. Um, yeah, you did too, but we're, we're good, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But anyway, so now we just basically decide one big gift we buy ourselves, treat ourselves each each year. Yeah, we're kind of doing that too. Yeah. 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 But everything this year was she's done all her shopping online. We have like ten Amazon gifts, ten Amazon deliveries every single day this month. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, same here, pretty much. Yeah, Christmas. Wow. I, well, I guess I didn't need this list of things to talk about. I made a list of <laughs> things, and I sent it to you by accident, which I thought was and I didn't look at funny. it because I, I don't like knowing questions in advance. Well, I like just some of these just came to my mind, like as I was just you know you know, going for a walk in the morning or something like that. And some of them, it makes me wonder, what did I think we could actually talk about? Like, how much was there to say? How much is there to say about the McRib, for example? <laughs> oh, man, you can go on for hours about the McRib. You can have your own McRib podcast. They probably do, right? <laughs> yeah. Somebody probably does. Well, here's the, here's the beauty thing about the McRib. First of all, it's absolutely awful. Right. But it's so awesome. But I mean, it tastes delicious, but it's so bad for you. But the thing about the McRib is that it only comes around every couple of years. And I think the last it's it's kind of like a comet sighting. You know, it comes around like every eight years or whatever. Right. And the last time the McRib came around was when we were at your place doing, I think, the the first or second Flying Colors album. Because I remember Bill, Bill Evans with, was with us and he made such a big deal about the big deal I made about the McRib. Uh, so this I think is that's what the I, last time. Mike, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> See, there is a lot to say about the McRib. <laughs> there is. It, and they, they actually had a thing where they had McRib finders and websites specifically to track uh, certain, you know, the, the, where, where it was specifically specifically popping up and you had to right. like find the location and go to it. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the, the, the return this month was really a, a glorious uh, you know, achievement in this horrible year, 2020. Glorious one achievement. One of the few good things. Achievement. I like that choice of word. <laughs> well, it, was, it, was a, it was a big deal in 2020, you know? Well, it's been a horrible year, but at least the McRib came back for, for a few weeks. Well, it's, it's, it's amusing to me for a lot of reasons. We both really like them. We, how do you know it's unhealthy? We don't really know what it is. We don't know what's in it. <laughs> well, to me, it's all about the, 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 the bun the sauce, the pickles, and the onions. The and actual rib itself is kind of uh, the mystery meat, right? Could be anything, actually. Yeah, total right. mystery meat. Actually, right. <laughs> well, I think one of the big things of your podcast should be food because people probably don't realize how much of a foodie you are. Uh -huh. And I, I've probably eaten about five thousand meals by your side. You know, whether it be uh, at your house or on tour or sitting in a dressing room or catering. And you know, we, we've eaten a lot of meals together. And I'm usually sitting right to your right. I don't know why that works out that way, but uh, but you enjoy your food. You really do. I do. That's true. You actually, the whole time you're eating, you're like, mm, yeah, wow. make a comment. You're like, get you get into it. Food kind of blows my mind. Like when I'm <laughs> eating something and it's like so good, you're just like, how is this? Ha like, how is this happening? Like, it's a, <laughs> every bite's like a miracle. You know, <laughs> the con the convergence the convergence of flavors is. But back to the mind of Mike Portnoy. Like okay. The mind of Mike Portnoy. How, who is going to remember that, oh, yeah, McRib happened at this time <laughs> when we were doing this session? <laughs> it's like, what? This is what I'm talking about. You know, well, people ask me all these kinds of questions in interviews, and I'm like, oh, you're going to have to ask Mike. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember any of that stuff. It's funny. I did a... Uh, a, a it's holiday season. I just got blasted with cameo requests. So I did about 50 of them yesterday. And yeah. one of them was a cameo for a guy. He said, okay, it was December 2nd, 2012. Uh, I was at your show in Torrance, California, and I got ejected for, you know, getting up and getting loud and rowdy and telling everybody to, to get up or whatever. And I looked at the date and everything, and I knew exactly what show it was. I knew it, it was Flying Colors, the very first show we ever played in, in Torrance, California. Ejected? But I was able, just from the date and location, to know what gig, what band. Yeah. And then a, I apologized to him that, that you know, the prog concerts are so formal and, and polite. He must have been pretty wild to get ejected. I mean, it's quite, that's quite I a know. word. That's like a James Bond word. <laughs> well, they had a button on his seat and just right. hit the button and it flies through the roof. Yeah, that, that had to have been a, uh, a I guess, a, a Calprog. What was it? You know, one of those uh, Papa Jim shows or something. And of course, those yeah. are a lot more formal, and and you know, people sit and politely watch. As long as they're awake, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we we've had a few where they aren't. Believe me, right. and they're always 
directly uh, sitting in front of Eric Gillette. Right, that's right. He was starting <laughs> to get a complex. Yeah, but totally. Was, I don't know if it was the tour or the tour before that. It's like every night there's some dude asleep right in front of me. I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. It's always at the mo- the most glorious moment too, at the end of the album, where he's just going for it, and and this yeah, it, there's nothing more inspiring than people in the front row sleeping. This is why prog festivals, especially indoor prog festivals, I say generally do not work because mm. it's, it's true. It's so much music to listen to, and it, it all day long. Right. And then a lot of the audience is older. Right. So right. if we go on at 11, I mean, I'm asleep by nine most of the time. Right. <laughs> and like you said, these people are enduring music all day long of, you know, 20 minute songs, every single song. So, yeah, it's definitely an, an endurance test. Yeah, uh, it's bad. It's an endurance test enough just to see one one of our concerts, but to go through a few day festival where it's just band after band after band. My favorite thing is a lot of times the promoter, of course, is a huge fan. So the whole time they're telling you, oh, we're so glad you're here. We're so into it. It's so amazing. And then as soon as we hit the stage, you see him right in the front. <laughs> <laughs> and it's usually and, and our wives are pretty much the same, too. I remember. Uh, the well, they won't even story- come. They won't even show up. Well, I think the last time Marlene saw Transatlantic was uh, the Whirlwind Tour, where we were, we were playing uh, the whole Whirlwind for the first set, and then the second set was made up of, I think, three half-hour songs, all the above, Stranger in Your Soul, Do With the Devil. So of the course. whole show was like three and a half hours. I remember the exact set list. Of course, you don't... Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an easy set. Though. It was a three and a half hour show of only six songs. So right. actually, it's not a, a hard set list to remember. But I remember Marlene, we, we finished the whirlwind. And for most people, you know, most wives, that would have been, okay, we're done. We're out of here. No, that's just intermission. <laughs> oh, yeah, I overheard. I overheard you guys going into the dressing room. Mike, <laughs> are you kidding? It's so long. Oh, my God, she said. <laughs> I love Marlene's responses to things. And yeah. the Prog Christmas album, right? You guys were trimming the tree. You had the totally. Prog Christmas album. Mike, oh my God, turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like the, the the Prog Christmas album we did. It's like every song starts nice. You have your jingle bells and oh, I oh, I, this is that song. And this, and then all of a sudden it just goes off on these tangents of fiddlies <laughs> and, and prog bits. And, yeah. and every time I have to throw that in the mix in the Christmas mu- music, Marlene's like, turn it off, turn it off. Right. She's, She's not a prog wife. Right. Yeah, my wife isn't either. <laughs> but speaking of Transatlantic at the TLA, that's actually on my list. Because, oh, really? Um, do you remember that somebody took your family's seats? No, that was... Trans- wasn't that Transatlantic uh, it was in both. New York City? It was New York City. Oh, oh, both. And it was this one, too. Okay. This was a different year. So, oh, okay. That, that... Uh, TLA would have been probably Whirlwind. Yeah. The New York show, the famous New York show was the first tour. Right. Yeah. Well, after Morse Fest this year, I was hanging around with some guys and I, uh, they, we were having dinner, actually. And the guy said, hey, I have a confession to make. Uh, I, I guess where you're going with this. Yeah. He said, because he watched the DVD and he was like, oh, man, um, he, him and his father-in-law and I guess his mom we're upstairs and he totally threw his father-in-law under the bus. He was like, my father-in-law just moved the tape and sat there and said, well, we'll see if they say anything. <laughs> and uh, like the, the waitress came up and said something to him and they just went, Oh no. Like, you know, just, well, you should probably tell the story for, for the, for the people watching that don't know the story. Yeah, go ahead. Well, should I tell it? You tell it. I don't, I don't remember. I think basically I asked the tour manager, it was a hometown show, and anytime we play hometown, you want to kind of reserve an area for your family. So I guess uh, I had Marlene and maybe the kids or some friends coming out, and uh, I asked the tour manager to rope off a section or tape it down, and uh, and then sure enough, come showtime, the family goes there, and there's fans, you know, just general public well, sitting in those seats. The funny one was in New York. Right. The, because the guy that was our tour manager that year every day or every gig, there was some major faux pas. I think when we played TLA that year, he left the intro tape running. So it, it was still doing that. For minutes into the show. In, yeah. Intro noise minutes into the show. And then, you know, he later on, he got in a car accident in the rental <laughs> van. And but there was just a lot of things. And so uh, I remember 
I remember you coming to me kind of going, man, this guy, just keep me away from him. One of those kinds of things. Just keep me away from him. He said, okay, Mike says to him, okay, you have one chance to redeem yourself. This is your chance to redeem yourself. See this table right here, right in the center? You know, my dad is coming. My family's coming. It's a very big deal. My dad came, flew in from California for the show. Right. I didn't know that part. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Anyway, so I had a real hard time getting there. I was staying with my family. I was at a hotel in Times Square, and I thought, oh, I'll just grab a cab. Like, we had sound checked earlier, way early, and the gig was at, like, 11.15 or something. You know, New York, right? So I remember not being able to get a cab in Times Square and running down the street just like, ah! Like, I was going to miss the gig. And I had <laughs> my... started without you. <laughs> and I had a cassette tape with my vocal warm-up. So I'm going... Yeah. So I finally get there. It's like 10 minutes before the show. And I walk in and I notice that I I don't think that's Mike's family at that table. (laughs) Right. So I walked and I walk up to the tour manager and I say, well, you know, what happened? What that was for Mike's family. And he this is what he said. I swear to God. He said, well, the people sat down there. What was I supposed to do? (laughs) Wow. And of course, it's the classic Seinfeld line. Right. Anybody can make a reservation. It's all about what is it? Holding the reservation. Keeping the reservation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anybody could, you know, reserve a table. The the whole trick is, you know, actually reserving the table, keeping the reservation. Right. Actually, Jerry Seinfeld was one of was one of my inspirations for doing this because oh, I right, uh, right. I was just Good in point. I was just in Colorado and. Uh, Brandon, my son-in-law, is really into that Jerry Seinfeld comedians in cars having coffee show, and so we watched a, several of them. And the the second one with Alec Baldwin is just hilarious, man. Oh, they're all great. And so, so I thought, this- oh, that'd be fun, just like talk, just that the you know, I I people have asked me about doing podcasts and things, and I'd been like, uh, I don't know, I'm not I'm not that into it, you know. And it seems like I I didn't want to like prepare a bunch of stuff, but I mean, if we can just like talk and have Chat. a good time and people enjoy that that'd be great absolutely so his is comedians in cars drinking coffee is this musicians on zoom drinking coffee do you have a title for this uh musicians what did i say i said it already musicians having coffee talking about stuff there you go because i didn't i did i wanted it to be i don't want to just talk about music stuff or right, right, right. you know i mean like uh, you know i wanted to ask you about like what was it like growing up, and what were what was what were things like in junior high school and stuff like that? Right. I don't know. Okay. So, well, what were things know? like in junior high school, Mike? <laughs> junior high school, uh, I was. Oh God, I, I could I could probably get my junior high school yearbook if you go on hold for one second. Well, I'm an American, so I can just fill the space. <laughs> yeah. Give me one second. I get my junior <laughs> high yearbook. Well, Mike does that. I will continue to peruse my list i have on the list remember that dude who took your family seats <laughs> now how bad is this to show how ridiculously organized i am that within 20 seconds i could find my junior high school yearbook that is insane how much does that say yeah it would probably take me weeks if so, i could ever uh, but i'm more like i'll never find it sort of guy no i i literally know where everything is here's here's a uh here's what the my jean jacket in junior high school. That's me right there. In the back of my jacket with Led Zeppelin and The Who the and Who, Rocky Horror and, and The Beatles, Pink Floyd. You know so the you Stones, see. man? I saw the Stones on there. Yeah. So I was already a, a rocker and a, a big music fan. And uh, But let me find my picture here. But yeah, that, I, I, I was just starting to play drums, but I wasn't very serious. Oh, here's really? There's my, ju- my junior high school picture. I'm wearing a John Lennon shirt. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. You look like Max, man. Or Max yeah. looks like you, I think. Totally. But uh, I think I won, uh, I think I won, uh, like, friendliest person, you know, in the end of year polls, too, I won uh, friendliest or something like that. Really? Wow. Wouldn't that change? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, into all those bands. I was into The Who and The Beatles and The Stones. And I was also into, like, uh, The Sex Pistols and The Clash and The Ramones and Kiss. 
I wasn't really a Prague guy yet. I hadn't discovered Prague. I didn't discover Prague until high school. So my junior high school years, I was still more classic rock. Uh, right. Well, you, know, you were you're younger than me, so yeah, I was born in '67. So right, yeah. So uh, by the time you're in junior high school, it's late '70s, early '80s, right? Yeah, early '80s. Yeah, '80, yeah. '81, '82. Yeah. So Prague is not. You know, I think the best Prague albums were all made between like '70 and '75. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I wouldn't even go to '75. I would say '74. The magic years are yeah, right to about '74. Yeah. I think it, you know. Uh, obviously, the the ELP they they all kind of had their classic trilogies. Yes, had Yes album Fragile, Close to the Edge. Right. Genesis had uh, I would say like Foxtrot. Uh, you know, maybe Foxtrot Selling England, The Lamb. Uh, ELP had you know uh, what trilogy and uh, what were their big three around that period? Tarkus uh, trilogy um, and. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's brain salad too. surgery, and then there's uh, oh yeah, yeah, brain salad. So, yeah. so I would say that those. I'm were a big, the years. I'm a big pictures in exhibition fan. That's a little earlier, but mm. yeah. But uh, but I would say around '75 is when they all started to fall off and get a little too crazy. You know, yes, did topographics and ELP where they do Love Beach and uh, you know. I think yes, Love Beach was quite a bit later. They probably were doing did works around that time. I'm thinking. I don't know. I'd have to. Right. I'm surprised you don't know all the dates. I know him. I do know him. I think, uh, well, the Genesis stuff, I mean, that was after Gabriel left, but those first couple albums without Gabriel, when uh, Hackett was still in the band, like Trick of the Tail and... Uh, Hackett. Yeah. Steve Hackett. Those, I think uh, Trick of the Tail is is a great, a great, great one. Oh, yeah. T- Trick of the Tail. I was going to say that, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder why that is. I was uh, Sherry and I were talking about this last night because we watched that Bee Gees documentary. Oh, and, so good. Uh, we were talking about like why is it that there's these kind of big moves of a type of music? She was saying it was just you know that it's just kind of style and fads and and things like that. And I think it's it's partly that, but it's partly there just happens to be a bunch of people, you know, doing the same kind of work really well for a season. You know, the British invasion and the and the Prague thing, and then the you know really the disco thing. I mean, it's not not my kind of music i'm you know i'm not a dancer mike and i think you can probably <laughs> vouch for that <laughs> but <laughs> kind of like how they were doing some really pretty quality songwriting and then there came the backlash and, and but that guy mentioned in the documentary that well then you know all these people started doing all this jumping on the bandwagon doing all these really stupid disco songs right you know whereas uh you know, arguably some of the beach, uh, the BG stuff had a little more quality. But I, I've always thought it was really interesting. Like, why is it that at certain times, I don't know, at certain periods of time, like in Germany, all these killer composers are writing classical music? Right. Pretty amazing. I don't think we've, we, we don't see musical shifts and explosions like that anymore. I, I, I don't think. I, you can't really look at, you know, the 2010s and, and see. Well, this was, you know, it wasn't like a prog explosion or a disco explosion. I think, you know, in the 60s and 70s, pop music or rock music was was still very new, you know. So I think you could have these big explosions. You know, the Beatles came on the scene, had a huge impact. And then, you know, what the Bee Gees did, did in the 70s or the punk movement with you right. know, Ramones and the Clash and the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, you know, the prog movement. So I think because music was still developing so rapidly back then you could have movements a lot you know when when was the last time a band made a splash like that in in modern times is very few i could think of you know really yeah i don't know why it is really you know i i don't know if it's because of the whole paradigm shift of business or i I don't know why that is i mean it's pretty interesting there's a lot of examples of it in history in literature you know there you have like all these great writers in the early 30s, all in Paris, you know, Hemingway and all these other guys are all like cohorts, you know, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. Same in, same in film, like in the 70s when like, uh, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, uh, you know, Brian De Palma, uh, George Lucas, they were all coming up at the same time. Martin Scorsese. Right. You know, you had this big movement, Robert Altman, Hal Ashby, all these kind of mavericks. And, I, you know, I, a lot of it's culture and 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 you know, the late sixties and seventies had such a culture shift, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I guess in modern times, in terms of music and and literature and film, you don't really see much of that these days, I guess, 
I don't know. Maybe maybe for music, it's possibly because uh, there's so little, um, you know, uh, help from from the mainstream. You know, Rolling Stone magazine or MTV or the Grammys, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're all so out of touch with with modern music. They kind of all just are vehicles for pop artists or rap hip hop artists. And a lot of bands don't even get any recognition from any of those areas anymore where they even exist. MTV doesn't even exist anymore. But you know, the point is they, they, they may champion like a Foo Fighters or something like that. But beyond that, uh, it's very hard for rock musicians or, you know, you forget about the, 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 the various, branches of rock you know whether it be metal or prog or anything like that forget it you know we're just completely in our own little bubble at this point yeah and it's hard to know like if we had been if you and i had been working and doing what we're doing what we've done in the last 15 years if we had done that work in the early 70s so you know if you could have transported us or what you know it's hard to know if it would have been a different path or would it would have been more popular or it, it would have been one of two things. We either would have been completely buried and unnoticed because back then, unless you get your record deal and with a big, big backing and you get Rolling Stone behind you, you know, unless you had that, that was your only vehicle to explosion. Right. But what, once you did, you were, you know, back then the, 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 the phrase I love is back then, you know, you had thousands of bands or artists selling millions of records. Now you got millions of bands or artists selling thousands of, of records. And right. So, so we would have either been huge, huge multi-platinum arena stars, or we would have been completely, you know, done and buried and starving and completely unnoticed. Well, one thing was we would have had to have been younger. I don't think ever uh, major labels would ever be signing guys. I mean, Right. When, how old was I when we did the first Transatlantic? I was 40. Yeah. It's like unlikely that, you know, uh, a major label would pick exactly. up uh, a band of guys. You know, you were what, 32, 30? I, well, I think I'm five years younger than you. So I was oh, in okay. my mid, mid 30s or early right. 30s. I, I can't remember exactly. But yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, you you didn't even, your prog career uh, you know, starting with Spock's Beard, The Light. How old were you? For the, I mean, that was the start of your prog yeah. career and you were in your mid-30s, I assume. Yeah, right? 35 when it started, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's because I was trying to get a deal as a, as a singer-songwriter all through the 80s. You in my 20s when I was really going, I, I just didn't see... Yeah, I remember sometimes running into other musicians and them saying something like, well, we're going to do an independent deal with this company in Belgium or something like that. And I thought, man, how sad those losers, you know? <laughs> right. It wasn't until I died to all of that that mm-hmm. I started to write Prague. Right. You know, I, I had to die to all the whole music, the whole business, really. It was backwards for you because most right. people will will start with writing progressive music and the, the stuff that, that comes from their heart that they want to do and then eventually have to fall back on something more commercial. You kind of went the opposite. Well, I wouldn't say that what I was doing in my 20s, it wasn't from the heart. It was just, it was just right, more right. like, you I, know, yeah, the singer-songwriter side of me. But, but, but you yeah, went from I mean, more commercial to more progressive. It usually, yeah. in a lot of times, goes the other way. Oh, it's hilarious. Like, yeah. my, like my album, Life and Times, is... You know, in a worldly sense of where we are in the world, in, a world. in the in a world, yeah, it, it you'd think that would be a commercial album, or th- you know, things that I do that are commercial actually, you know, t- they sell in the hundreds, Mike. Right. You know, <laughs> so it's uh, it's really funny. Um, so when I do a commercial album, it's only because it's just in me and it's got to come out, and I just want to see it happen, and I'm just feeling those songs. But yeah. oddly enough. I, I could probably get with someone, I don't know, like, uh, you know, Robert Fripp, if he was still active or something like that. And, you know, Neil Morse and this guy make a record. We could we could set a tape loop up and just loop <laughs> it. Just leave the room, right? <laughs> make a Fripp and Eno album. And, right. uh, and it would probably sell, like, you know, 20 times the amount that my, like, regular song so, albums right. sell. Hilarious. <laughs> Well, because well, you know what? Thank God we, we, we made our mark in our we have our niche and we have our audience. And thank God for that. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. Because those people, you know, their hearts are totally in the right place. You know, it's not a fashion show. It's the God. Thank God. God knows, my wife would say. Um, 
<clears throat> that's a jab at me, not anyone else. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Thank God that they they really care about the music and uh, they're very dedicated and and uh, it's a very heartfelt thing. I'm really thankful for for all of that. It's just kind of a funny upside down kind of thing. Totally. But hey, you know, like uh, like you said, thank God for for our audience because they allow us to. You know, we get a lot of credit, you and I, for how busy we are and how how much you know, how prolific or how, you know, creative we are just putting out multiple albums per year. But the reality is if we didn't have somebody listening to it and an audience helping support and allowing us to do this, we, we, we wouldn't be able to, you know, work as much as we do and do as much as we do. So thank God we do have the, an audience like that. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about that lately, how you'd have to have an outlet. If, if you don't have an outlet, you'd be like a chef that's just cooking and if all the food just sat there and rotted, after a while you'd quit cooking. Right. Well, that's that's to me the uh, the scary part of um, what's going on with Spotify and music today. The fact. Oh, that, are we going there? Well, well, <laughs> I, I don't want to. This isn't a ba to bash on Spotify, but go ahead, to your man. Point, Whatever to you your, want. To your point of, um, you know, if there's not an audience for it, why do it? I, it's scary to think of how many young up-and-coming musicians, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 21-year-olds that want to do this for a living, and there's no way they're going to be able to do this for a living because at this point in 2020, you, you can't make money off of your music. So how scary is that, that there might be these incredibly talented, prolific, game-changing artists yes. that we'll never hear because they at some point just get discouraged because they can't make a living and provide for themselves and their family out of making music and then they just give up and walk away and and how horrible is that that is absolutely horrible yeah and and it's you know sad to think of the the bands and the artists in the coming in the coming 10 20 years that we're not going to ever hear because i mean the one good thing about the internet is these artists can get their music out there they can create and have an outlet and they don't need a record company or rolling stone magazine like like we were just saying like we did in the 70s right so the good thing is you have your outlet but the fact that they are not going to be able to make a living off of it not be able to monetize it and and somehow pay their bills they're they're eventually going to probably just make it a hobby and have to go out and get a job at, at a, an office building somewhere. And that's a scary thing. A couple of things about that. First of all, people aren't going to miss what they don't know they're missing. That's one of the hard things about that whole situation is, you know, yeah, there's, I know some really great young artists that people aren't getting to hear, but they don't know that they're missing it. Also, Mike, people are used to hearing things that are really high quality. They're used to hearing you know, really great sounding records. I mean, if you want to compete, right? And that, I mean, that just costs a lot of money to do. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I know um, when I when I was in Dream Theater all those years ago, we would we would you know go to the high, the big expensive you know thousand two thousand dollar a day studios and we'd lock it out for months on end and we'd stay put ourselves in hotels in manhattan and you know i i've joked with you before and i've even said it you know we, we made one album our starbucks bill alone was like thirty thousand dollars you know <laughs> and uh and honestly that's in this day and age a waste of money and i think that's you know it's sad that the big studios are closing because bands don't have those kind of budgets anymore and we don't have those kind of budgets anymore because nobody buys the music anymore but i think the good news is you can make a great sounding record without having you know i think in modern day times especially this past year everybody's in lockdown even paul mccartney just made his first lockdown album you know right uh, yeah with the pro tools and and yet yet you have all your gear in your house so everybody this year was you know recording in their homes and and yep. i think a lot of these albums do sound actually really really good i think if you put uh you know for instance solo gratia your your last solo album made completely in lockdown I think sonically, if you play it side by side with Close to the Edge, uh, or let's even let's pick up a Close to the Edge is a '70s smaller budget, but let's say a, a big budget album of the '80s. You know, uh, you could put it side by side, and sonically, I think it's going to sound just as good, and maybe in some cases even better. So I think yeah, you but can Mike, make great Solo Gratia is still. I mean, just doing the bare minimum that I do, it's still more money than I could afford to pay if I didn't get any kind of advance or anything. 
it's still, you know, Rich, you know, God bless him, but Rich is not cheap. You pay him. Uh, Jerry Gidros isn't cheap. The string players aren't, you know, everybody's right. got to get paid, you know. You've got to right. get paid something. Yeah. It's still, uh, I'm just saying. Oh, good point, yeah. If, if, if somebody is just some guy, uh, you know, in his early 20s who doesn't have any money, who's like maybe making minimum wage already, like he's going to need some help. Well, well, I think once again, I got to disagree because, and here's the perfect example, Billie Eilish last year, biggest album of the year, biggest star and breakthrough star of the year. I think she won something like five Grammys or whatever. She and her brother made that album in their bedroom. In their bedroom, yeah. They live they live at home with their parents still. And they made, they probably, they probably cost them a couple thousand dollars maybe at the most to make that album. So it can be done. It can Obviously, be done. The albums we make, you know, you know, we we are hiring, you know, string players and mixers and things like that. But it you, you don't have to. No, I mean, if you're somebody like uh, the Boston dude, I mean, he made that whole record in his basement and then sold it. I mean, if you're a wizard with audio, right. you know. Uh, but I think those those are the outliers. And what we're really going to miss out on is the bands that took seven six albums before they made their great one. Right. right? right. You must have some of those on the, as an example, at the top of your head. I can't, I can't think of one. I mean, I, I think gentle giant is a band that didn't take that many albums arguably, but I, I think they developed as they went along. Right. Or maybe I should put it this way. It was a great thing that, that at that time there was so much money in the business that uh, labels could afford to just invest and stay with stay with people for a long time. It's- Look at Pink Floyd. I mean, Pink Floyd's biggest selling album is Dark Side of the Moon, and that's I think their fifth or sixth album. Is and it really? I was- See, I wouldn't even know. Yeah, hey, well, you never even heard that album. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that was on the charts for like th- a thousand weeks or whatever, and it sold how many zillions of records? But but that's like their sixth album or something like that you know yeah. there's a lot of bands that are on the or, or rush you know rush's biggest album was moving pictures that was probably their sixth or seventh or eighth album or uh see yeah, I, I knew you'd have this i knew you'd, you'd just, <laughs> yeah. he's gonna know this. or well example like the, the Bee Gees thing we watched exactly. you know so they go into their their slump i mean they would surely be dropped and they were being considered to be dropped but Rob, robert yeah. stigwood said no we're gonna stay with it and that that was a fascinating documentary because they went through stages too. They had they had their late sixties very kind of Beatles, Badfinger, you know. Really, did you hear sound. Be- you heard Beatles in that? Did you? <laughs> oh, I loved. I'd say I love those albums. Those first four BGS albums, but that they almost felt like they peaked, and then Robin leaves the band, and that could have been the end of it. Then they come back a few years later. Then they had little jive talking and nights on Broadway, kind of okay, maybe you know they're back, and, but you could have thought, okay, maybe that's the end. And sure enough, by the time they hit Saturday Night Fever, you know, they hit the jackpot. And that's, you know, 10 years into their career at that point. Yeah, because they had to develop the geek. <laughs> what? That's what I used to call, that's what me and my friends used to call the <laughs> guy. Like he was just, he wasn't really one of those tan, handsome guys. They they kept <laughs> They kept this little, like, emaciated uh, albino guy in the corner of the no, a little gnome <laughs> right in the corner of the room every once in a while they'd like put some like pliers to his toes and he would go ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it took a while to develop they had to develop that well yeah, they actually they right. did they did yeah totally. it was funny when they talked about that too because i remember i really liked nights on broadway yeah that was a bg song that i really i really loved the synth bass I thought it was a, it was a good song and a good groove, and I remember the 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 falsetto uh, vamping at the end, right. and thinking, oh yeah, that oh, that's interesting, that's working, and then everything after that was was all that. Yeah, totally. And so it was interesting talking about them sort of discovering this sound and right. and all of that. Hey, you covered a Bee Gees song, man. We we covered uh, one of the obscure early '60s ones on uh, the. Cover, yeah. One of the cover to cover albums. And, Lemons. And right? I just heard that Barry Gibb heard it and dug it because I, I connected with Barry's son, Stephen Gibb. Really? And, uh, he told me that him and his dad loved uh, our cover of Lemons Never Forget. So how cool is that? Wow, that's really cool, man. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Mike, I got to ask you something maybe, maybe a little more serious. Um, okay. People ask me about your spirituality, Mike. I, I, that's kind of a funny thing, right? <laughs> so where's Mike at with God, they will say to me. And I'll right. say, 
Well, I don't know. Uh, you should probably ask him. Right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I don't want to make you uncomfortable or anything. We can edit oh, no, this no. out if you want. I'm not but, uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I just thought I should ask because I know people are interested. Well, I, you know, I, I'm not um, a practicing... Uh, well, I'm Jewish uh, by birth. I mean, I was I was uh, born into a Jewish family. My both of my parents are Jewish. But how's I, the song go? I, I'm a uh, a heavy metal, blue bearded, long haired tattooed, tattooed Jew. Jew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was I was born uh, into it. I was born, I went to Hebrew school when I was a kid. I got uh, kicked out of Hebrew school a few times, uh, expelled. I was. What did you, you get know, expelled for, much, man? Come on, come on, come on. Oh, just because I, I hated it, honestly. I was just a horrible, horrible student. I didn't want to, I had no interest in it, but I was kind of doing it to, you know, keep my family happy. Were they teaching um, you scriptures to memorize and stuff like that? or? Oh, I don't remember. I didn't even pay attention. I was, as you, as I always jokingly say, I'm, I'm the world's worst Jew, you know. <laughs> he said that in Israel, by the way. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you know, I went through that and I got bar mitzvah when I was 13. But to be honest, uh, when my, my mom passed away and my grandma passed away and then my dad passed away, kind of all, they were the three influences that were kind of, you know, um, keeping the Jewish traditions in my family. And to be honest, once I, the three of them uh, were, were gone, um, I just never had a personal interest in, in religion, to be honest with you. Uh, so I'm, you know, really a non-practicing Jew, <laughs> just to put it that way. And then, but then to come back to, you know, spirituality and, and, uh, you know, obviously I, I work with you and you're so much of your lyrics and your music is so spiritually and, and, and based in, 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 in that, uh, uh, but I'm not a Christian, you know, as you know, but just to answer for the people out there, um, I don't practice anything, to be honest, but I respect it. I surely can. And plus, also, when I got sober, I, I went through, uh, you know, the step work and everything like that, which a big part of that is turning it over and believing in a higher power and, you know, closing with the Lord's Prayer and all that kind of stuff. And I learned, you know, I leaned on the serenity prayer so much, you know, in, in early sobriety. Uh, so I, I, I do right. believe in a higher power and spirituality. I'm just not a practicing Jew or Christian or, or Buddha or whatever. Uh, but I, I, I respect, uh, I respect you and, and how, how important it is to you. And also the other guys in the Neil Morse band that, you know, I, I, it's a big part of, of, uh, all of your lives. And I respect that. And I think I'm a better person for being around it when I'm with you guys, you know, I, I definitely feel like I'm a, a calmer, ca kinder uh, person when I have that energy around me. And I, you know, I always have to, when I'm with you, I have to be very, um, you know, I watch my mouth. I have a New York trash mouth at times, but I, you know, I try no. to not swear, you know, and I try, you know, I, I, it's a good, calming, positive influence in my life when I'm around it with you and the other guys or, you know, uh, coming out to Morse Fest is always a very spiritual experience. You know, it's, it takes place in the church and most of the people coming um, are, you know, very, very spiritual or religious. So, yeah, I, I really I can respect it. I really do. And, and I see how good of an influence you and, and that has been on me. So I, I really do appreciate it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I remember uh, I was in California uh, after it was the it was this the fall after I had quit Spocks in June, and the announcement I believe was made after the album came out in September, or maybe it was October. So it was around November at that in September and October, I was getting all this flood of ideas that became the testimony album. And so I was feeling like the Lord wanted me to continue to do music. I mean, that was how surrendered I was. I, I didn't really know if I was going to continue in music or what God was going to do with me. And I was just ready for whatever he wanted to do. And um, I remember being uh, taking a walk on the beach out there in California and praying about, well, who should I play with? Who should play on this album? Uh, because it was clear by that time that there was an album and... Uh, and I remember like feeling inside your name. Mm. And I said, Oh, come on, no way, not him. <laughs> <laughs> not a heavy metal long haired right. heavy metal long haired blue bearded tattoo Jew. I playing said, on your 
testimony album what i started i didn't really argue i I, for me it was really more like i don't think mike's gonna be into this really was was how i was thinking but i thought well i'll ask you know and uh cut ahead to when we were making the album we were you were playing drums and and you know it it always amazed me how much you get it like i didn't i didn't know anything really about where you were at spiritually or anything much at that time. But I'll never forget, you stood up your, your drum kit when I say I waved goodbye to my past and walked into the kingdom. You stood up at the kit and said, this is the whole album right here. Je- Jerry? Jerry! <laughs> Jerry! <laughs> he's making, he makes a little megaphone with his yeah, hand. Yeah, that's my little megaphone. Jerry! Because he's afraid he won't be heard, you see? <laughs> Got to make sure we're heard. Yeah. <laughs> us, yeah, Americans. us Americans. Us Americans. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was like, wow, Mike really gets it. Because I've, that is, of course, the pivotal statement. Right. You know, is like, okay, I'm actually going to go this way. Well, well, first of all, I appreciate you inviting me on the journey with you. It would have been, it would have, think about if we, didn't continue from that point on we would have pretty much made the two transatlantic albums together and that would have been it so and now look at what we've done the 20 years since you know between flying colors and all of your albums and neil moore's band and i mean you know it's a it's an unparalleled body of work that we've done through the last 20 years or so so i thank you for for calling me and inviting me to join you on the journey but as far as getting it uh Man, I mean, I, I was so moved by that album. And I remember the shows we did in support of that album being brought to tears so many nights on stage and feeling the spirit and feeling the the love and, and, and the energy, uh, you know, so many, so many, at so many points, uh, not only on that tour, but in all the years that followed, you know, we've had so many of those moments where I was brought to tears by what, what is going on and you could feel it when, yeah. when it's happening yeah sure yeah so i thank you for having me on the journey with you well thank you man wow what a what a tremendous contribution on so many levels um but i remember you coming off stage i think maybe at that what's now become like a kind of i don't know a mountaintop event for me that first testimony show at the astoria in the basement of the mean fiddler it was called Yep, I remember. And I, and I think you came off stage and said, "What are you doing to me, man? What are you? What's going on?" I was like, "I was like, I, that's just God because uh, that was so powerful. It was the first time I ever gave my testimony about Jada to yeah. a to a non church audience. You know, it's like, and I just felt the Lord's hand at my back, like speak. And I was like, oh my God, you know, you don't know if they're gonna throw stuff at you or you know, it's a pretty risky thing." And uh, but obviously God was in it and touched the whole place. Uh, I yeah. know that for a fact because um, we had a service in London about three years later, and a guy came and gave his testimony about being there that night. And he came because of you. Wow. You know, a lot of people come because of you. I, I don't. You're probably aware of that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? If I could use my my powers for. For 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 good, then that's a great thing, you know. Oh yeah, it was great. And the, this guy's story, really briefly, was that he was about to leave his family, leave his church. He'd had enough with everything. He's just gonna get in his car and keep on driving. And after the concert, he was so moved, he went back to his family and went back and, wow. you know, and he was crying and and it was Amazing. you know so, yeah. What that's, a, what it's, that's what it's all about, man. You know. Yeah, and and we all know that it w- wasn't any of us that did it. You know, oh, I know, was, I know that 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 it was just it was God just working in that room. I mm-hmm. was just responding, and I was willing, and I was scared, actually. Well, I know. remember that was a very spontaneous moment too. You didn't warn us beforehand that it, it, we were in the middle of I think uh, oh to feel him was it or yeah I think or, so. uh, yeah and and uh, and you just asked us to wait and and we brought it down and. You know, yeah. and then you 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 gave that testimony about Jada there for the first time. That's the first time I had ever heard you talk about it openly, and and it, I mean, it was just so powerful. It was incredible, really incredible. Yeah, wow. And so, like you said, so many other amazing moments 
Well, to the point where you now have a tissue box mounted on your keyboard on stage. (laughs) You know, it's not a good gig if Neil comes on stage and he hasn't cried. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My uh, my granddaughter was in here recently, and she's like, "Opa," she calls me Opa. Uh, Opa, why do you uh, why do you have this tissue box covered in black (laughs) covered in black tape? (laughs) Well, so it won't show up on the cameras. (laughs) Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to land, brother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could do this all day. It'll be the longest podcast in history. We, yeah. I haven't kept do... track of the time. What time is it? Oh, yeah. That, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. About you, time. you remember to hit record, right? Yeah. Yeah. I got it on Pro Tools too. Oh, can we can we do that again? I'm sorry. We got to do the whole thing over again. Yeah. Right. I've done a few. I've done a few interviews <laughs> like that where you know you find out uh, you know a few days later the publicist will say, hey, that journalist lost the tape or never hit record or <laughs> Oh, I know. Well, that's the why I, that's why I was so paranoid to do this last Morse Fest actually live. Cuz I've seen the stop, you know, nothing's working thing so many times. I just wanted to right. have a little bit of time to make things What a right. great what, I mean, what a great Morse Fest this was. It was so different. I mean, it was really strange to not have a, a an audience. And we had a little bit of an audience, but it was very 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 uh small. Uh, but it was just, it was just nice to play again. That's the only time I've played, you know, on stage this whole year, you know, since everything shut down. So it was really a blessing. And, and, um, there were some powerful moments. The first night, the cover night was so much fun. That was just about fun. And, uh, you know, getting a switch, I got to play bass for three songs and, oh, that was just the fun night. But then the second night was the real powerful you know, yeah. theatrical, emotional night. And uh, you could, you know, by the time we got to end of Sola Gratia on the second night, once again, you could feel it. And even with a very, very, very limited audience in the room, you, you know, it was it was more than just us or the audience. It was, there was something there. Yeah. And uh, it was great to be able to do it and share it with people all around the world that maybe never were able to come to a Morse Fest. So, yeah, it was a great, great, uh, great experience. Yeah, I'm amazed at how you know with all the moving parts and all the things that could go wrong how uh how well it all came together and thanks for all that you do and all your help and and for being such a good friend and and for uh having this conversation with me today man oh man my pleasure man i love you brother i love you too man all right well thanks for having me congratulations on your maiden voyage and wait a second what what (laughs) Merry Christmas, Neil Merry Christmas (laughs) Hey, there we go There he is There we go There you go Santa Mike All right, man Well, Merry Christmas And Happy Holidays To to you and your family Same to you uh, You guys have a great New Year and all that And And I hope to be Seeing you soon, man Yeah All right Yeah, I will be Seeing you soon you will, you will. I didn't know if you wanted to divulge that information, but I'll be seeing you very soon. Yes. Have you been a good, a good boy this year, Mister Morse? <laughs> if you've, I know I, you I'll, haven't been naughty. I know you've been nice, so I'll be I, coming to visit you soon. I think so, sir. I think so. <laughs> All right, man. You have a good. Actually, one. I don't look. I don't look like Santa. I look like one of his elves, more like it, right? <laughs> All right, my brother. All right, yeah. You take care. I love you, and I'll see you soon, man. All right, take care, bro. Bye-bye. Bye bye.